You're tuning in to an Oats for Breakfast extended interview. In this segment of the interview, you'll hear Asia and Patrick continue their discussion with Jordan House about the struggle for justice in the prison system. They talk about how prison labor is justified from a philosophical moral perspective, whether substantive prison reform can take place without broader societal reform, and whether it's possible to imagine a society that doesn't have prisons. We hope you enjoy the interview. I'm at a loss to understand why are these why are prisoners firefighting? Why are they doing all these things? <laughs> Couldn't they have just been firefighting first without going into prison? Yeah, well, I mean what comes up a lot in the discussion of firefighters in particular in California is the is the terrible, you know, discrimination that people face coming out of prison in the way that convicts are precluded from all sorts of categories of employment and so lots of these firefighters actually can't by law be firefighters after their release oh yeah so what purpose does it serve then we're not like helping them get jobs yeah i mean the california case i think it's it's very clear that this is like necessary for the public budgets right what it would take to employ firefighters at market rate it's definitely more expensive than whatever pennies right. are being paid. And so that's definitely a factor there. Normally when I buy coffee, I look for fair trade certified organic <laughs> because I want to make sure I want to make sure I'm getting the least amount of exploitation. So like I'm worried now when I go to Ikea, how do I know I'm not going to have uh, furniture made in a Canadian prison? Is there a trade designation associated with that? Will it say prison premium model or... I think if Canadians knew about that, uh, they might second-guess some of their purchases. Or I would imagine, really, these are big institutional purchases, though, that are being sent between uh, different um, agencies and the government. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, I think we've heard some of these controversies about companies like IKEA and Whole Foods and Victoria's Secret in the U.S., like, you know, employing and exploiting prison labor and the ethical implications of that. In Canada, the vast majority of goods and services produced in prison are for what's called state use, which means that they're sold to other government agencies or departments. Um, But maybe like to kind of look at the question from a different angle. Is there a philosophical reason why uh, we think it's okay to have prisoners work for so little money? Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's two main reasons why prisoners work basically in every prison system, and they are cost recovery or in some cases, you know, profits. Right. Uh, But also the rehabilitative ideals behind work and labor. And so there is an understanding on the one hand, which I would say, you know, in kind of a almost a spiritual sense, this like Mm-hmm. Protestant ethic yeah. that work is just good and rehabilitative in itself. Mm-hmm. And there have been times when the left, even the radical left, has bought into this in very unhelpful ways. Mm-hmm. But I was then they say, I don't have many spiritual awakenings in some of the work I do. Why would that be the case in prison? Right. I mean, I think there is something to the idea that, you know, humans mm-hmm. are creative beings and we want to have ways to, you know, act out those creative urges in the world. Yeah. But in my experiences at work, in my life, I have not found it very fulfilling <laughs> in itself. Sure. Uh, work has been a means to right. pursue my creative activities in other places. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it is doubly so the case 
uh, in prison where things are much more regimented and constrained and, uh, you know, the consequences for not working or bad work performance can be like a lot worse than anything I've faced. Yeah. But the other reason to have prisoners work besides this kind of spiritual <laughs> ethic is kind of like the more social science idea that work and employment is rehabilitative. Mm-hmm. And so... And what do you think of that? Do you think well, I mean, it's like, I think it's pretty well established in kind of like criminological literature mm-hmm. that employment after release reduces instances of reoffending and recidivism, right? Like going sure. back to prison. Yeah. But that's like hardly surprising, mm-hmm. right? When we think about what are the reasons that people engage in the kind of crimes that they get caught and go to prison for. Poverty. Poverty is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, so does having a job make one less likely to reoffend or go back to prison? Sure. Mm-hmm. The question, though, of the extent to which prison labor schemes actually offer anything in terms of rehabilitation, I think is very uh, dubious. You know, so the question is does prison develop or equip people with marketable skills? And there's a few problems with that. So, like, one is that prison labor programs kind of all are plagued by this a general issue of selection bias, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the best workers in prison, the people who, like, often get to go into more specialized programs or vocational programs, the things that might actually give them real skills on the job market, well, they tend to be the people who are already have the most labor dis- discipline mm-hmm. or the most well-adjusted in other ways. Maybe and have so, the least amount of mental health issues Right, and, and stuff, so, yeah. like, the people who are most likely to participate well in prison labor programs mm-hmm. are also just the people who, like, might be most suitable to work in general. So there's, like, a real question of to what extent are people actually being equipped with any kind of skills, even these soft skills. Like, Corcan talks a lot about soft skills. We give people a schedule yeah. to show them what it's like <laughs> to have a work ethic. And it's like, that's all well and good, but the economy is not good. Right. And what does it mean to have to go out of prison and to get a job where, okay, now you have a work ethic, but you're going to work like a minimum wage job, a part-time minimum wage job. Yeah. It's it's And you have a criminal record that really sets you behind. Exactly. And then the tension, there's always been a tension in giving prisoners real marketable skills that kind of the general population doesn't have access to. Mm. And this kind of relates to an argument that I kind of make in the Jacobin piece about services generally uh, for prisoners, which is any kind of services that prisoners have and have access to that the general population doesn't uh, are going to be attacked as privileges. And this has always been the case with like the teaching of trades in prison. Because if you're a welder, you say, well, what the fuck? I had to pay to go to welding school. Oh yeah. Where someone goes to prison and comes out. I think that's a, a really interesting. But it also goes the other way too, where you're saying we don't want to give privileges to prisoners that people don't have. But uh, in the prison case, if I were to let me maybe just read uh, Jason McLean, who's the correctional officer and president of the Nova Scotia Government and General Employees Union. And uh, this union represents workers at the Burnside Jail. When he was kind of confronted with the demands of the prisoners, he said, I see what they're saying, and they want to have more access, but that's a hard thing, I believe, to sell to the people of Nova Scotia, considering hardly anyone has a doctor anymore. 
It's like a justification, in other words, to lower the standards on the outside as well by saying prisoners shouldn't have too many privileges that other people don't have. If you take away privileges from people on the outside, you can take them away on the inside. I kind of read that more as the sense of like, like exasperation, like, you know, we don't even have these things. And now you're asking us to fight for prisoners to have these things. Are you kidding? Well put. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the the main thrust of it. And well, to say a few things. So one, just to be clear and on the record, I do want expanded services <laughs> uh, for prisoners. And there is like a particular need for those things. But at the same time, I think like a lot of well-intentioned people who talk about prison reform and more rehabilitation don't seriously confront this issue, which is that we can't actually expect a broad host of services to be available to people in prison if those same things aren't fought for mm-hmm. generally and universally. I, I think that's a consistent feeling. I mean, you know, but I don't think it should mean that we shouldn't try to get them for prisoners. I right. think it, it should mean the opposite, a positive sense of we should try to get this for everyone. Right. And I think, you know, with prisoners, we see like a particular need for certain things. Yeah, the, that's you true. Know, the rates of mental illness, yeah. the, uh, you know, just the sheer amount of trauma mm-hmm. and abuse that people have suffered who are in prison says like, yeah, there's a particular need for this. Yeah. Uh, but we should, you know, I think on the left in particular, be talking about how, well, obviously there's a need for this before people get to prison. Yeah. And we don't want a society which is structured in a way that in order to get necessary services, somebody has to go to prison to, mm-hmm. to access those things. And and we're seeing I'm seeing little stories like that come up on the headlines where people are intentional not in Canada but I read one coming out of Japan and even in the United States people are going to prison to get like healthcare or to get like a safe place to sleep or something like that. Yeah, you see these things come up. If people have seen the the movie Sorry to Bother You, have you guys seen that? Yeah, the Boots Riley one. Yeah, there's an interesting part in it because part of the plot of the movie is oh, yeah. like there's this dystopian prison-like job guarantee where if you go work for this factory and basically make yourself a slave and live and work there um this is an option for people yeah and then this is juxtaposed with the like the precarity that people are facing on the outside in the main character there's a scene where his uncle talks about joining up uh this you know job security for life program and going and living in this institution and working yeah and he's like why are you why are you doing that and the guy says Oh, you know, well, there's three hots and a cot, which is what people talk about prison sometimes. Yeah. So at least, you know, he's saying that at least I know for sure that I'll have a roof over my head and something to eat. I, I mean, I, I actually found that movie really, really sad because it was so close to what, you know, what we're seeing in everyday life. You know, how shitty our daily existence is for so many people that prison seems much better in contrast. Yeah, although I wouldn't want to over yeah, I don't exaggerate want to this case, the, yeah. you know. There are thousands of people trying to get out of prison for every one person is. And it is, you know, and we should not romanticize uh, anything about the kind of stability or, you know, uh, provisions that people are provided with in in prison. Can a society exist without prisons? It is certainly possible to have society without prisons because most of human societies for most of human history didn't have them. How do you mean? Well, nothing that looked like the institution of prisons that we have today. Like, these are very historically specific 
institutions. That, so you're talking about like the mass incarceration? No, not just mass incarceration, but the idea that you put someone in a building mm-hmm. as punishment is a pretty new idea. And, you know, the prison system developed historically alongside capitalism. Right. And, you know, prisons and factories, without getting too much into Foucault, <laughs> it's not no. surprising. <laughs> Don't stop now. It's, you know, it's not surprising that these things which are developing at the same time are responding to the same kinds of reorganization of society. Right. And so, you know, prisons are a combination of these kind of welfare mechanisms, which were bad, like workhouses. Yeah. But also earlier kinds of punishment like you know jails which before what we have as modern prisons the idea that you put someone in a place as punishment wasn't really you know common people mm-hmm. would be held temporarily awaiting punishment but you know but that would be something else corporal punishment which is mm-hmm. obviously bad okay execution don't like that either right transportation exile not that these things are very humane or good but the idea that you punish someone by sending them to prison is new and is very intimately connected to the history of capitalism and labor. Well, I mean, I, I think that it sounds to me like this aspiration is pretty utopian. It's something that's never been... I, my, my knowledge of anthropology is limited, but for this, I went back and I looked at something I studied in undergrad. I looked at peaceful societies that have very low rates of violence, um, but they still would, you know, for example, murder as a form of, like, they would just murder, get rid of people who, you know, did something really blatant, according to their cultural norms. So it didn't have to murder or anything. It could be something like not sharing continuously, like you're the spoils of your hunt or whatever. So it seems to me like, you know, yeah, we haven't, we, we don't really know what such a society would look like. We don't know how we would really deal with prisoners yet. It's something we're still working through. It sounds like that to me. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about what utopia looks like so <laughs> right, much, yeah. but I think there is, you know, something to discussion, discussing this idea of prison abolition, which is a term which has become very popular Yeah. and almost mainstream. And, you know, prison abolition is something I am kind of ambivalent on. Because a lot of the prison abolitionists and what people mean by prison abolition is really just like rhetorical posturing. What people mean by that is like, oh, I'm a radical who does prison justice work instead of (laughs) boring reformists. When in fact, you know, either basically prison abolitionism takes like kind of what I would say is like a harmful approach, like these slogans that get thrown around like fire to the prisons is like just idiotic. at least because of prisons are full of people, at least you have a plan to get them out and like fire to the print. Like, but it's very, it really demonstrates the poverty of that kind of slogan. Like you have no plan. Yeah. It's just performance. And then, you know, the other kind of prison abolition work is actually just reformism. Not that that's bad, Mm -hmm. but a books to prisoners project or a prisoner correspondence project Mm -hmm. or some sort of community reintegration project is all well and good, but to pretend that that is tending towards the abolition of the institution of imprisonment is, I think, silly. Mm-hmm. And I think this idea of like abolition or reform is a false dichotomy, at least like right now with where we are and what's going on. It's like saying we want revolution, not reforms. It's like, well, sorry, we, we need to win reforms first if we're even going to have revolution on the table. And so, you know, I think it's really interesting. People ignore this guy, Thomas Matheson, who was like one of the original 
um, Scandinavian criminologist who was talking about prison abolition in the 70s. And he wrote a book called The Politics of Abolition that really kind of put this idea forward. And in the new edition that just came out a few years ago, he has a really interesting discussion of, so what does abolition mean? And in order to talk about what he has kind of come to in terms of what that means, he draws on this socialist scholar, Andre Gores, mm -hmm. who has this theory of structural reform. What we need to be talking about, I think, in politics in general is structural reform, but we also should be taking this to our ideas of what, what does prison reform look like, reforms that could fundamentally transform these institutions or... I think Gores used the term revolutionary reforms. Yeah, or revolutionary reforms, same idea. Well, it sounds like to me there's a lot of room for creativity. And yeah, so I mean, I think it matters a lot less about our debates about whether or not there'll be prisons in socialism, yeah. which somebody like Ursula K. Le Guin mm. is like much better position <laughs> to do in like the dispossessed in her book where she does do that. But I think like for us, it's like what we need to be talking about is things like normalizing prison labor. Yeah. People who work in prison should get minimum wage at least. Yeah. They should have all of the health and safety and rights to form and join unions as everyone else. We need to find ways to empower prisoners' voices in terms of representative structures and how prison is governed. These are the kinds of things which... I would say are things that might approach a revolutionary structural reform. You were just uh, just to go back to your article. I mean, you said here that um, in a, <clears throat> in a labor organizing drive, um, the, which was ultimately unsuccessful, uh, federal prisoners were deemed to fall outside of the labor code because they're not employees but participants in rehabilitation programs. Right. So, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I don't get in really to the legal, you know, nitty gritty of that kind of stuff. It's my understanding that there have been some changes to labor law, which could change that. Like the decision which allows RCMP officers to collectively bargain could kind of ironically offer an opening for prisoners. Interesting. But I think that really I'm not the technical legal side is not what's so important. It's building, you know, the political will to say it. If these are the rules, then we have to change them. So instead of instead of abolish prisons, we should start with unionized prisons. <laughs> <laughs> As a first step. Uh, but I'm with, you know, Claire Calhoun. Yeah. If we want to take this idea of prison abolition seriously, we mm -hmm. have to take the position that we need to radically transform the entire society. Yeah. 